1967, the Green Bay Packers won the very first Super Bowl over the Kansas City Chiefs. 67 was also the year the Freedom of Information Act took effect, and since you can't tackle your way to federal agency information, not legally anyway, let's focus on the latter. This week's theme is FOIA, and this is the IRE Radio Podcast. IRE, with you on your beat for over 30 years. I'm George Varney, and there are zero possible reasons why this podcast would be exempt for your download, which is nine less than the possible exemptions for FOIA requests. On today's episode, we have a Q&A with FOIA Ombudsman Kirsten Mitchell. She'll take us through some common mistakes and their fixes on FOIA requests. After that, we'll get more tips on the FOIA process from a number of journalists, including Deb Nelson, who will teach you how to fight those pesky exemptions like a pro, which is important because you never know what information an agency is holding back. The agency was really digging in its heels, but eventually they had to turn it over, and in fact it showed extraordinary levels of uranium in the water that people had been drinking for decades. In another story, Charles Ornstein and his ProPublica team made an unsettling discovery about Medicare after they successfully FOIAed prescription records. We, we found that here you have the Medicare system which collected all of these, all this information on prescriptions, a billion prescriptions a year, and, and then what we found is that they didn't look at it. The details behind those stories and more coming up on the IRE radio podcast. Next, Kirsten Mitchell shares the most common mistakes she sees on FOIA requests. What is the most common mistake you would see on a request? And then if you could give us a little insight on how you would fix it. Sure, sure. So we, um, people come to us with their... Uh, FOIA um, problems that they're having. So we see a lot of FOIA requests from all sorts of people, from prisoners to journalists to commercial users. And I would say the most common mistake that we see is not providing enough information to help the agency fulfill the request. Uh, And I think one good example, especially for this audience, is... um, would be freelance reporters who are seeking representative of the news media status for the purpose of FOIA fees. Uh, And we would say, don't let the agency have to do an online search to figure out who you are. Let the agency know about your publication record or a contract you have with a particular publication. And by providing that information, that helps the agency better determine which uh, category to put you in for fee purposes. So that's um, one area. Another area where people will write in and they'll ask for any and all documents about a particular subject. And it's certainly understandable why people do that, because they're not real sure what an agency may or may not have. But it really helps to do a little homework beforehand and sort of try to narrow the scope so it's not some huge um, broad request about a particular topic. That was an excerpt. The full interview is available online at IRE.org. And for more help on a specific request or to get a better understanding of the FOIA process as a whole, be sure to sign up for a one-on-one help session with a representative from the Federal FOIA Ombudsman's Office. These sessions will take place Friday and Saturday at the upcoming IRE conference. More information and online signups are available on our website.
Up next, a look into using the Freedom of Information Act to get the records you need for your investigations. Deb Nelson of the Philip Merrill College of Journalism at the University of Maryland has a three-step process for FOIA. Step one, research your opposition. One way Nelson suggests is using information found in the data tab of the FOIA.gov website. There, you can select an agency and see how often they use each exemption. The EPA, for example, uses Exemption 5, Internal Agency Communications, most often. With that information, you can begin Step 2, Legal Research. You can research arguments against the exemption, and Nelson suggests an opportune time to do it during your call with the agency. You can build an argument while you're sitting on hold waiting to talk to that person's boss. You don't need a lawyer. What you do need is to understand the FOIA exemptions better than the FOIA officer does. And I'm telling you that's not always hard. A well-researched argument to release federal agency data is important because the stakes can be high. Nelson explains how she had to fight to get data from the Indian Health Service about poisoned wells. When I was working at the LA Times running the investigative team here in Washington, one of my reporters was investigating a epidemic of a strange disease on the Navajo Reservation. Judy Pasternak was looking at an outbreak of neuropathy over time. And there was a big suspicion that toxics, uranium, from uranium mining had gotten into the water supply. Um, she had developed that suspicion over time where her reporting had led her that way. So we FOIA'd the Indian Health Service for its um, records, its, its testing of wells, water wells, on the Navajo Reservation. They shot back with us Nope, you can't have it, Exemption 9. Now, if you look at Exemption 9, just the, the short version of a, Exemption 9, it says geological information. You might say, oh, well, okay, I guess we'll have to think of something else. So Exemption 9, we'll find out that it protects from disclosure of geological, ge including maps concerning wells. This exemption, if you read on, if you continue re to read on, you'll see that it's really aimed at gas and oil wells and it's there to protect proprietary information. It's not intended to protect water well testing. So we were able to argue back using case law that in fact that those records were releasable. It took a while. The agency was really digging in its heels, but eventually they had to turn it over. And in fact, it showed extraordinary levels of uranium in the water that people had been drinking for decades. They didn't know it. The information had been withheld from them. So lives can be at stake, you know, fighting the government, fighting those exemptions, as I bet everybody here knows. Um, you know, you could save a life by knowing how to fight an exemption. Getting the records you need doesn't have to break the bank. Independent journalist Michael Revnitsky explains how journalists can avoid fees. Your status as a journalist gives you a special trump card that you may not realize the full value of. You are not, the agencies are not allowed to charge you search fees. They're not allowed to charge review fees or much do in the way of duplication fees either when it comes to electronic data. And a lot of journalists don't realize that. They ask for, search, they ask for fee waivers, which sounds good, but the agencies frequently use that as a way to stop a request because they challenge the nature of the fee waiver, why you're asking for it, what you're going to do with it. It allows them to intrude very uh, substantially into your journalism research and development process and the editorial process and I recommend to a lot of journalists that they don't ask for fee waivers in fact because you don't really need it for most cases if they can't charge you review fees which they can't charge to any non-commercial requester and they can't charge you search fees then they only can charge you duplication costs and if you're asking for electronic records those are likely to be minimal 
And even if they're paper, it's still fairly minimal usually. Another freebie agencies can give you, perhaps unwittingly, is a story. If your requests are denied and information is withheld, people should know about it. The public is interested when agencies deny records. Let's say you go to an agency and you want to get this record, you need it for a story, and the agency says no. They've made an agency decision. This is an important public policy decision they've made, and in many cases, the public now accepts that that is newsworthy. Editors didn't used to like to print stories that said agency X won't release its records on Y. But the public does understand that that's important now, and I think the tide has turned. It's not inside baseball anymore. It is actually an important public policy decision because under the Obama uh, presidential memo on FOIA, there's a presumption of openness. And under the Attorney General's memo on FOIA, there's a, uh, unless there's a foreseeable harm, that's, that's the words in the memo, foresee no foreseeable harm, then agencies are supposed to release the records even if they fall under one of the technical legal exemptions. So the public policy is agencies should release records unless there's a particular strong public reason why they shouldn't and you can report that the agency didn't release it and that can often change their mind. If reporting an organization's non-compliance doesn't prompt them to release the data, try changing your request to get around their objections. Charles Ornstein and Jennifer LaFleur explain how they tailored their FOIA request to get Medicare Part D information from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, while working on a story for ProPublica. Ornstein and his team went to CMS after deciding that information held by the Research Data Assistance Center, or RESDEC, was too restrictive. One thing that was really important for us is we wanted the ability to name doctors and allow people to look up their doctors. And one of the things with RESDEC is when you request data from RESDEC, you have to sign an agreement saying you will not identify doctors, nor will you match it to other data sets to let people identify doctors. Well, that was an absolute non-starter for us. We felt it was really important that as we were writing about this issue, like we wanted people to actually be able to look up and see, did their doctor do things like these other doctors we were writing about? Once the team had CMS as their target, they had a meeting at the CMS office in Baltimore and made compromises to get the data. Since Ornstein was interested in doctors and not individual patients, he gave up minor details to get the bigger picture. The paramount thing was being able to uh, get doctor identities and reuse those. So we, for instance, said if a doctor wrote a, um, a prescription to fewer than 11 times, we were willing to have that information redacted. Um, we, were, we don't know like which plans the doctors wrote the drugs in. We don't know the characteristics of their patients beyond if they're over 65 or if they have low-income subsidy. But we felt that this was enough to begin getting a, a prescribing portrait on doctors. Even with the compromises, it was still a long process. It took several months to craft this. There were two different schools of thought within CMS. There was a team that actively fought against our request and tried to ensure we never got it. And then there was a group who supported it. And that group ultimately won the support of the administrator of the agency that agreed to release it. But it took months for this to work out. When ProPublica finally got the data, they began to look at the big picture of doctor prescribing patterns. Only Medicare can see the whole thing. And Medicare has taken the position that it wasn't their responsibility to look at it in a central way. So you can see how that could be problematic. So the ProPublica team did look at the prescribing patterns in a central way. And by comparing doctors, they discovered some red flags. And we found that there were doctors who were prescribing, say, 9,000 prescriptions for antipsychotic drugs to seniors, a single doctor, a doctor, in fact, who had been kicked out of the Medicaid program. This is Dr. Casuso. Tracy went and visited with him. He, um, his, what he said is you have to submerge them in medication to avoid a catastrophic event. Um, 
So, yeah, so he prescribed more antipsychotics to seniors than any other physician in the country, 50% more than the second ranking doctor. And these were patients who lived in assisted living centers that were pretty grotty. You would think Medicare would call up Dr. Casuso and say, what's up? You know, like, why are you doing this? But they had not. He had never gotten a phone call, right? Um, that's problematic. You know, 74% of his patients over age 65 received an antipsychotic compared to 26% of patients over 65 for all psychiatrists in the state of Florida. So knowing that comparative information, like, allows you to make, ask better questions of Dr. Casuso. We also learned that Dr. Casuso had been kicked out of Florida's Medicaid program for, wait for it, over-prescribing antipsychotic drugs to seniors. So um, Medicaid, we've learned, does not talk to Medicare. That's part of a problem. have to fill out any forms or wait an additional 20 days to find out where we get our audio clips of journalists taking you behind their stories, I'll tell you right now. All of our audio comes from panels that are recorded at IRE conferences and watchdog workshops, and you can hear stories like these and more in the flesh at the end of the month. This year's showcase panel at the 2014 IRE conference in San Francisco will focus on government surveillance how to cover it as a story, and how those prying eyes impact your work. Panelists will include former New York Times executive editor Jill Abramson and members of the Guardian and Washington Post teams whose award-winning work exposed many of the issues and more. Separately, the Electronic Frontier Foundation will hold a couple of hands-on sessions to help you equip yourself to communicate more securely because you can't skate by with carrier pigeons and pig Latin anymore. Lowell Bergman will deliver the keynote address during our annual awards luncheon. He's a pioneer in nonprofit investigative journalism. He's worked for 60 Minutes and ABC News. He was a correspondent for the New York Times, and now he teaches at the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism, along with doing documentary work for Frontline. And if you're not impressed yet, he was portrayed by Al Pacino in the journalism classic The Insider. A number of new sessions will focus on international issues, including a newly added session featuring reporters working in the midst of the uprising in Ukraine. The session will include two members of the Yanukovych leaks, a group of journalists working to rescue and publish tens of thousands of documents dumped into a lake at the residence of the former president of Ukraine. Thank you for listening. If you have any suggestions or comments, please feel free to send an email to either web at ire.org or my email, georgev, that's G-E-O-R-G-E-V, at ire.org. This podcast started because of feedback we received from IRE radio listeners who wanted to download the audio, so feedback is very important to us. And that's it for this week. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm George Varney.